0: You would please turn with me to James chapter 1, verse 1, as so we begin our study of the book of James this morning. When I was growing up, my uh, sport of choice was ice hockey. Uh, this particular team that I played on was sponsored by the Boothroyd Insurance Agency. We didn't get to pick our sponsor, we didn't get to pick who we played with either. Uh, what we do is we'd go to a tryout and coaches would watch us and they'd collect some data on us and then they'd go sit in a smoky room, you know, and divide up the teams. And this is the team that I, I ended up with on this particular year. Uh, and there was one guy on this team I'd never met him before. I'd never played with him. I'd never played against him. I'd, I didn't know him. He didn't go to my school. Uh, but he showed up at the first practice and he had he had the gear, right? I mean, he had, he had great equipment and my buddies and I were like, awesome, man, we got ourselves a player here. This is, this is going to be a good year, so... Good. We're, we're pulling together a good team. First game, um, this particular kid was on defense. And after the faceoff, the puck came back toward him and, and it missed his stick and got caught up in his skates. And so then he, he kind of started spinning around, you know, trying to, trying to get control of the puck. And it was amazing. Somehow he got his stick on the puck and he hit the puck and he scored a goal <laughs> against us. Right now, I'm going to not, I, I won't name names because uh, you don't know any of these guys, but that um, was that kid right there. In particular. I, I, uh, I, I still remember, you know, it's it still burned deeply within me because it didn't happen just once. It seemed like about every other game, somehow he'd get turned around facing the wrong direction and he would knock in a goal against us. And I learned a great principle for athletics in life. Everybody needs to be moving the same direction on a sports team, right? You you can't be divided. You have to be undivided. You have to have the same goal. And the goal is to score on the other goal, not on your own goal. It's true in athletics. It's true in marriage. Husbands and wives, you learn this principle very early. You want a red couch, she wants a white couch. The solution is not a pink couch, (laughs) right? Right? The, the solution is not compromise. The solution is that you need to be undivided around her will on couches, right? Okay. It's true in athletics. It's true in marriage. It's true in so many of our relationships. It's true in our relationship with Jesus Christ personally. It's true in our relationships together as the body of Christ. We need to be unified. We need to be undivided for life to work well. James will tell us that the opposite of this, the divided life, is destruction. The divided life just doesn't work whether it's the divided soul, internally divided, one foot in the world and one foot chasing after God, or divided as a community. We're going to see in book of James, that the divided life is a life that steals our joy, that robs us of peace, that empowers temptation within us, that brings harm to others, it makes fools of us, it brings discipline. And in James' terminology, he's going to say that life leads to death. Not go to hell, but a wasted, ruined, foolish life that may in fact end prematurely. The undivided life, a life that's given wholly to God, James is going to tell us, is a life of of wisdom. It's true, genuine wisdom from above. It's, It's peace. It's endurance. It's strength. It's righteousness. It's honoring to God and it's a blessing to others. This morning as we begin this study of James, we're just going to look at one verse. We're going to look at James chapter 1 in verse 1, and we're going to look at the theme of being undivided, living a life that is undivided for God. I want you to read with me James chapter 1, verse 1. James says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. James is going to argue that the undivided life begins with absolute and undivided devotion to God. Allegiance, loyalty. James begins the letter by introducing himself. That's not surprising, it's pretty common. James actually uses a a greeting that is common in secular writings because the common Christian greetings of joy and peace and grace to you really hadn't been developed yet. So James starts by introducing himself. He's the writer. He says, James, but uh, who is James? Which James? There are at least three James. In the New Testament, James is a very common name throughout the world in that time. There was, uh, in the New Testament, James, the brother of John. Remember, sons of thunder. There was James, the son of Alphaeus. He was one of the twelve apostles, but we really don't know much about him. But most likely, this is James, the younger half-brother of Jesus. Remember, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Mary was made pregnant by the Holy Spirit. But Joseph stepped in and he raised Jesus. In a sense, he really adopted Jesus but then Joseph and Mary had other children, so Jesus had younger brothers and sisters. The one who wrote this is probably James, the younger half-brother of Jesus. Now, can you imagine being raised with Jesus as an older brother? I've often thought, man, that had to be rough. James, why can't you be more like Jesus? You know? I, Jesus picks up his clothes. Jesus does the dishes he helps. Jesus doesn't backtalk me. James, come on. I mean, what pressure? So it's not surprising, James was a skeptic. Apparently all the brothers were a skeptic. They're like, well, you know, mom and dad kept filling his head with all kinds of crazy ideas. James, Jesus, you're so great, you're so this. Now nah, he thinks he's Messiah. He thinks he's son of God, right? They thought he was crazy. In fact, we're told very directly in John chapter 7, it says, for not even his brothers were believing him. They did follow around apparently and they did listen, but they thought he had lost his mind. They thought he had lost his mind. But then James, apparently, had an encounter with Jesus. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15 by Paul that Jesus, resurrected, appeared to his brother. And James' life completely turned around. He was going his own direction. He he decided to follow Jesus. He understood the significance of Jesus' death. It wasn't just that he was a criminal, a subversive against Rome, but in fact he had died to pay the sins for every man, woman, and child who had ever lived. And James believed that. And James believed that God had raised him from the dead because he saw his brother and he touched his brother. James believed. His life was transformed after seeing Jesus resurrected. But he introduces himself not as the brother of Jesus, but as a slave. You know, James, after the resurrection went on and he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, Paul calls him a pillar. Uh, He was known as James the just or James the righteous. We find in uh, Eusebius, the historian, that he was known as James the camel knee because he was on his knees so much worshiping God and praying and interceding. Josephus actually The Jewish historian writes more about James and his righteousness than he actually writes about Jesus. James was, he was the man. He was the center of the church in Jerusalem. And yet, he doesn't say, hey, you should listen to me because remember, I share genetic code with Jesus. Remember, I'm an apostle. I'm the pillar of the church. I'm the leader of the first church, the mother church, the church in Jerusalem. He says, no, I'm James, the slave. Now, My translation says James, bond servant. But that really misses something in the translation. We hear the word servant and we think of somebody who has a choice. Who's employed, maybe a maid or a butler. A valet. They can choose to serve in a certain manner and they're paid for it or they can leave that job and seek another. But the word is doulos and it means slave. It means a person who has no rights. It's a title of humility. It's a title of humiliation in that culture. James is a slave. In the Old Testament history, though, it's also a title of honor. Moses was called the slave of God. David, Jeremiah, Daniel, Amos. Slaves of God because there is no higher calling than to be flat on your face before the one true God of the universe. So James doesn't say James the apostle, James the brother of Jesus, James the pillar of the Jerusalem church. He says James... The slave. And it wasn't because he was coerced to be a slave. He chose to be the slave of Jesus. He was compelled after seeing the resurrected Son of God to follow him and to give him absolutely everything. Remember in the Old Testament there was a practice that if a man became uh, indebted, could not pay his debt that he could make himself an indentured servant or a slave to another Jew. He could sell himself into slavery, and when he had paid off his debt, he was free to go. But if he decided that he really cared for that master and trusted that master, he could permanently enslave himself. It says, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. He would take an all, and he would go up to the doorpost and the master would pierce it through and he put something through that that indicated, this man has voluntarily chosen to be my slave because I'm good to him and he trusts me and he wants to be my slave. James, in a sense, went to the doorpost and he allowed Jesus to pierce his ear. He said, the most important thing about me is that I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. And this is a choice that each of us has to make. It wasn't just a choice for apostles. But it's a choice that each of us has to make. Will we be slaves of our own appetites? Will we be slaves of the world? Or will we say, no, the most important thing about me is that I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. It's true of James. It's true of us. It's true of James' audience. I want you to notice in particular who James is writing to. He says he's writing to the twelve tribes who are scattered. Twelve tribes scattered. James is is a unique book in this respect. It is written almost exclusively to Jews. Hebrews seems to have that that flavor as well. But right from the very beginning, James says, I'm writing to twelve tribes. I'm writing it to people who identify themselves as Jewish, but they're Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. And they're scattered. They are probably Jewish believers in Jesus Christ who were born and raised in Palestine. That's their history, that's their background, that's their culture, as we'll see later on in the book. They were almost certainly, the majority of them, very poor. But now they've been scattered, and they're no longer living in their homeland. This word for scattered was a technical word by the time James wrote. It meant a, a Jew who was living outside of Palestine, which was actually the majority of Jews. In that day, as well as in our day, they were living outside of Palestine. Now, in the Old Testament, this concept of being scattered was first introduced to us. It's introduced to us in the Law of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 4, it says this, The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. In other words, the scattering was for discipline. God told the Jewish people, he said, "If If you become like the people around you, if you conform to them, if you become divided in your allegiance, and you're trying to walk with the world and walk with me, then I'm going to step in and I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to, I'm going to remove you from the land. That's going to be discipline. James is writing to a group of people who are not under discipline from God, but they are people who have been removed from their land. People probably lost their homes, lost any property they have, their families have been broken up. They're scattered. Why? I want you to turn with me back to the book of Acts, chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. So now Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. James stayed put. James was the leader of the church. James was highly respected, even among the non-believing Jewish community at this time. Later, they would take him, And they would throw him off the temple and then they would beat him to death and he would be killed as a martyr. But right now they they still honor him and respect him. He stays, but there's a persecution and the church is scattered, not because of discipline as in the Old Testament, where the the Jewish people were, were, were scattered when the Assyrians came down and took the northern tribes away and then the Babylonians came in and took the southern tribes away and later Rome would come in and scatter them. They were scattered for a purpose. Chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Because they were scattered, they took the gospel everywhere that they went. Look with me in chapter 11, verse 19. Acts 11, verse 19, it says, So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, right? That's Acts 8, made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word at first to no one except Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch, and they began speaking to the Greeks, the Gentiles also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And so because of their scattering, God used it. And he took the gospel to more Jews who were living outside of Jerusalem, and even beyond that, to Gentiles and we see in Acts chapter eleven, the church begins to go multi-ethnic, and more and more people from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation are begin begin to be brought in. Why? Because God scattered the church. Not because of discipline, but because of mission. They were on a mission and they were taking the gospel and it was a wonderful thing. But you know what? It was really still hard. Some of them lost their lives in that persecution in Jerusalem. They may have lost their health. They may have been beaten or stoned on their way out of town. They may have lost their land that had been held in their family forever. They lost their homes. They probably couldn't carry much with them. They had to get out quickly. It was difficult. It was hard. It was hardship. They were suffering. And everywhere they went, they didn't fit in. They would go first to the Jewish community and they would go into the synagogues and they would begin to worship. But they had to proclaim that Jesus was Messiah. And so they would be persecuted by all of the Jews. In fact, what we see in the early history of the church is that the Christian, the Jewish Christians, were persecuted more by Jews even than by Romans initially. But then Rome took it up as well. They didn't fit in with Romans because they didn't want to assimilate into Roman culture. The Romans were idolatrous and they were immoral. And so the Jews dressed differently and they ate differently and they spoke differently and they acted differently. They didn't conform. They didn't fit in. And so they were persecuted harshly. They were suffering. What we're going to see in this book is James is writing to a people who are poor and they are suffering. They're suffering persecution. What's the temptation when we are suffering? When we're being persecuted by others, we want the persecution to stop as quickly as possible. We want all suffering to stop as quickly as possible. I've never been in suffering that I haven't said to myself, how can I make this stop really quickly now, right? And when others are persecuting you, what do you need to do? What, you need to conform. Okay? If you go their way, then it'll all stop, right? Do you remember your first day of school? I mean, first, first day of school. It's funny because... The social hierarchy gets created almost immediately. You're on the playground. You walk on the playground the first day, and somehow there's one or two or three kids. There's some kids who just, they just rise to the top, and they're going to create the culture, and they're going to establish what's cool and what's not cool, and who's in and who's not in. And what you need to do if you want to get in, but you might do it and still not get in, because they are in control. It's power, man. They've got that power, and there's a pressure to conform to say certain phrases, to speak certain ways, to dress certain ways. You know, I, I grew up, obviously, in a hockey area. I grew up with uh, straight-leg jeans and topsiders, right? And then I moved to Texas. But, you know, it's boots and bootleg jeans, and, you know, I didn't own boots, and I do not want boots, necessarily. I just, you know, I, just, I didn't fit in. There's this pressure to conform. Now it's skinny jeans, right? My wife won't let me wear skinny jeans, but that's okay, because we're like, just imagine be preaching in skinny jeans. We're, she and I, we're, un, we're undivided in our commitment to me not wearing skinny jeans, so it's okay, don't panic. I had a friend actually show up at my house one time, and, and he was a guy, he was wearing capris. And I go, bro, <laughs> you're wearing capris. He goes, I know, man, aren't they cool? I go, no, they're not, they're not cool, they're girls' pants. You're wearing girls' pants. And he goes, no, no, they're not girls' pants. I, you know, he had spent the summer in Europe. He goes, I just got back from Europe, and all the guys in Europe, they're wearing capris. They're really cool. They're comfortable. I go, but, bro, you, you're not in Europe. You're in Texas. I mean, can you imagine going down to Cavender's in your capris? Hook me up with some new boots. I said, you know, so I, I pressured him to conform, right? And when we are suffering, we are under pressure. To change our ways. Freshmen, you are about to walk on to a new playground. It's a really big playground, and it's got its set of rules. What's cool and what's not cool, what works and what doesn't work, what's accepted and what's not accepted. And some of those pressures you may say, I'm ready for that, I'm prepared for that, I know about that. No pressure to party, to exercise all of your freedom, because mom and dad aren't watching. But there are other pressures, pressures of pride and intellectualism, pressures of the world's values, what's really important, success and money and a certain form of beauty. And you will have to make a choice. Are you undivided in your allegiance to God or will you try to walk in both worlds? James says the divided life is a destroyed life. It, It doesn't work that way it's miserable robs your joy robs your peace robs your effectiveness for living for God James chapter 4 verse 4 is a really critical verse for understanding the whole book it says in part do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God you can't love the world and the things in the world and love God you are in the world, Jesus said, but you are not of the world. You're not part of this system. And he doesn't just simply mean this, this physical place. He means it's all of its values, all of its its structures of, of power and worth. You don't live for this place. You're here, and there's no getting around it, and you're in it, but you need to have an influence on it and not have it conform you to its own standards. But you make an impact on your world. So choose you this day, who will you serve? Joshua said. But as for me in my house, we say we're undivided. We will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. Are you prepared for that? Foundation, James says, is an undivided faith. Read with me again, James chapter 1, verse 1. James, slave of God. And of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are scattered, dispersed abroad. Uh, What's interesting about the book of James is that the theology is really just assumed. It's not so much taught. Now, this is a little different for us. Remember, last year we studied the book of Romans. We spent a whole year in the book of Romans, and man, Romans is deep and it is heavy. It is theology. Of course, it's very practical in its theology, but it's very dense theology. Uh, you need to read James, it has been said, in light of James. Okay, don't read James in light of Paul. Paul had different concerns. James actually wrote much before Paul. James wrote before the Jerusalem Council, which happened in AD 49. That was when they were working out, uh, how can Gentiles be a part of the kingdom? Do they need to obey the law? And James and Paul and Simon, the rest of the apostles, came together and they said, no, you don't have to obey the law to get in or stay in, all you have to do is believe that Jesus is God's son, that he died for your sins, that he was raised from the dead. Believe. There are certain things that you should do so you can get along with one another because we have cultures in conflict here. James wrote before that was even an issue. James wrote before 49. He may have written as early as the middle 30s. When we read James, you need to understand you're reading probably the first book ever written in the New Testament. Okay? So, James isn't concerned with some of the same things that Paul was concerned with. James is writing to almost an exclusively Jewish audience. Remember, the first church in Jerusalem was Jewish. And then a few Gentiles who had converted to Judaism or who were honoring of Judaism, so they understood Jewish practices, they understood the law, and so they weren't offended by these things, and they weren't trying to to stop people practicing these things. They were were working their way into the Jewishness of the community and believing in Jesus. And James is writing to a group that is, in that sense, unified in their faith and unified in their understanding of culture, and so they're not at conflict in that sense. So James is going to talk about justification in chapter 2, But he's not contradicting Paul. He's addressing a different issue in a different point in time. At this point, James is talking to an audience that shares a common faith. The foundation of that faith is that God is one. In fact, James is going to quote Deuteronomy 6 later. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 is called the great Shema. Shema means listen, hear, listen up, pay attention, because this is the most important and central point of theology for you who are Jewish. Hero Israel, the Lord our, is our God. The Lord is one. There is only one God. He is self-existent. He is not dependent on anyone else or anything else for his existence or for His joy or for his peace. He is self-contained. He is good. He only gives good gifts. He can't be tempted. He can't tempt anyone else because he is without sin. He gives wonderful gifts. He is sovereign. He is creator. He is in charge. And he is engaged in your lives and in the world. Hear, O Israel, this is our God. Our God is one. They shared that common theology. However, James goes on. He also says Jesus is Lord. And when a Jew heard this, they would be hearing James correctly that he is saying Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. For a Jewish mind, that was blasphemy. Okay, because remember, hero Israel, the Lord our God, is our God, the Lord is one, there's only one God, it's God our Father. And Jesus, uh, James is saying, no, Jesus is also God, and God is still one. This is the first statement about the deity of Christ. It is foundational for our understanding of the Trinity, God is three persons, but there is one God. Three distinct persons, but they are a unity. He who has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. James says Jesus is Lord. He doesn't defend it. He doesn't argue it. This is not Colossians chapter 1. It's not a gospel introducing who Jesus is or an epistle explaining the doctrine of Jesus or of salvation. It's just an assumption. James expects that they will not object, that they understand Jesus is God, as is the Father God. And James says, I'm a slave of both. Third, Jesus is Christ. Remember, Jesus Christ is not his name. It's not Jesus, first name, Christ, last name, like Brian Fisher, right? Jesus is his name, and the name means what? Yahweh saves. Christ is his title. He is God's Messiah, Mashiach. He is the anointed one. That is, he is the prophet that was promised by Moses. He's going to announce truth to us. He's the priest who will reconcile us to God, having forgiven us our sins. He's the king that's going to come back, and he's going to establish his rule and reign on the earth. But he hasn't done it yet, so guess what? You don't fit in. But all of our hope rests in him. Hope means we don't have it yet. But boy, we're longing for it. And we're living for it. And we're giving our entire lives now for that. Because Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is Christ. He is our Messiah. And James assumes that they agree with him. Notice in James chapter 2 verse 1. He says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. James knows that they know. That's who he's writing to. James himself saw the resurrected Jesus and understood. Oh, he died for my sins. And he was raised. I got to touch him. And he has proclaimed that. And these people have been persecuted because of that belief. That's why they're scattered. So James won't spend a lot of time talking about the gospel, so to speak. Or presenting the gospel. Because he's written to people who have already believed. And I want to say to you this morning, if you have not yet believed that Jesus died for your sins and that he was raised proving that he conquered sin and conquered death, if you have never said, God, I believe that, thank you for Jesus, that's the starting point. James is going to give us a lot of instructions here, and and you're going to hear that as, man, I just need to go out and clean up my life so that I can be acceptable to God. No, that's not how it works. We are not acceptable to God because of our sins. Jesus stepped in and removed the debt of our sins so that his spirit could empower us to change us so that we could, in fact, become more like Jesus. But you can't become more like Jesus on your own strength. First, you need Jesus to forgive your debt and live inside of you. And so I encourage you, if you've never made that decision, that is, boy, freshman, if you haven't made that decision, that's a great way to start this semester. It's a great way to start. It's foundational for all that we're going to be studying the rest of the time. Don't miss the fact that this is a free gift given by God to you because he is a giver of good gifts. They have an undivided faith. And what does it look like? It looks like an undivided life. Life that's not going this direction and that direction. But is simply moving one direction still within and unified between what's inside and the behavior outside. Abraham Kuyper once wrote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. A lot of times we divide our lives. There's the secular and the sacred. Here we are, we're doing the sacred thing, right? Right? We give God our hour on Sunday, and maybe there's an hour or two on Tuesday or Wednesday night when we do our Bible study. And possibly throughout the week, we slip in a few moments here and there of quiet times. And that's God. But then the rest of the time, when I'm eating and I'm sleeping and I'm studying and I'm pursuing my job or my marriage or my family or a dating relationship, well, all that's mine. That's my domain. And then there's God's domain. Because there's sacred and then there's secular. Because eating and drinking and sleeping and all that, God doesn't care about that, does He? No, no, that's not that's not true. Because you are a creature made in the very image of God, all of your life can and should be sacred. All of your life can be an offering to God. When you're you're interacting with your children or your spouse, when you're going to work, when you're waking in the morning and you're brushing your teeth or you're eating breakfast, when you're exercising, when you're studying. All is within the realm of God, and all can be offered as an offering to him. God, thank you for giving me this mind, this body, this spirit. All belongs to you. See, this is why James is going to emphasize um, obedience so much. He's going to say there needs to be congruence, integrity, and what's happening inside of you in your heart, but also between the internal and the external, if you believe, then it's natural that you would do. The first and foremost commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't hold anything back. The second, Jesus says, is, is like it and they're really linked and you can't unlink them. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because God is God, you owe him everything. Because God is God and he's made you in his image, he's also made your neighbor in his image. Therefore, it's just natural that you'd love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and turn around and love your neighbor as yourself. And really, if you want to think about the book of James, that's it in a nutshell. The great commandment. There is no greater commandment than these two commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. You ever had a friend who... um, steps on your toes all the time. You know, a friend who thinks he or she's a prophet, right? Just keeps, you know, just keeps meddling and poking and, you know, trying to speak truth in your life all the time. And I don't know about you, but, you know, I, I know I need those kind of people in my life. I appreciate that, but sometimes they're really annoying. Okay? James is like that. There are 108 verses. There are 54 commands. That's easy math, okay? That's like a command every other verse. You're going to get, you're going to hit it. He's going to step on our toes over and over and over again. Uh, This last week, my son was, we were all together as a family. We were praying and my son prayed and he said, God, I I pray for daddy. I pray that he would preach really well. Then he paused and he said, Jesus, I pray that it just wouldn't be same old, same old. (laughs) So, you know, that's why you have kids. I don't think it's going to be same old, same old. James is is going to get after it. And he's going to challenge each and every one of us to live a life that is completely undivided for Jesus Christ. Two things I'd like for you to do this week. First is read through James. Just sit down and read through it once. It'll only take you five minutes maybe. Sit down and read through the whole book. Begin to get a sense of what James is about. You may not have read it for a while. We spend so much time reading in Paul, reading Psalms, James is different. Okay, read through the whole book. Second thing I'd like for you to do is, you got an insert today on uh, how to get connected. One of the greatest gifts God has given us to keep us undivided in our lives is other believers in Jesus Christ, who can come alongside us and can say, you know, it seems that you really love the world in this area, and they can nudge and they can prod and they can they can love, but they can. Also speak truth to us. Let me encourage you. Uh, don't go through the semester and stay unconnected. And get divided. Okay? We need to be unified within, but also unified with one another. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have not left us in the dark about how life works. It mean, really, genuinely works. You made us. You designed us. And so you know what will really work well for us, what will bring joy and peace and satisfaction, what will bring honor to you and bless others. I pray, Father, that we would hear and not become those who look at our face in a mirror, walk away and forget. I pray instead, Father, that we would be effectual doers of your word. Father, I thank you for the gift of life that we have in Christ that starts it for us. Thank you, Father, that he has freely removed our debt. And I pray, Father, that we would long to live for him. Lives that are undivided. In our devotion to you, it's in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Students, have a great first week of school.